easily one of the most powerful stories in the Bible. It sounds kind of silly almost to say it this way. Uh, but obviously the entire Easter story. And I think a lot of people are extremely familiar with what happens from Friday to Sunday. All right, we've seen it depicted in movies. Uh, you know, you've heard countless sermons. Okay, and then what? It's not unknown, but it may be a little less known is what happens from the previous Sunday up to that Thursday until Jesus is actually taken into, into captivity um, or taken by, you know, by the priests. Um, so much happening. There's so much happening. It starts in chapter 19. So I want to go through this and kind of just lay out the story of what's happening. Then I want to talk about how God has kind of made us as human beings, what makes us tick. And then I want to look at just a couple of people in this narrative of what's happened and kind of and see if we can't grow through this interaction, okay? So it's Sunday. Um, you know, we all know it is the triumphal, uh, triumphal entry. This is Palm Sunday. Jesus had already been staying at Bethany. He's hanging out with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Uh, there's already, this is important, there's already a crowd gathering, especially when he hangs out at Lazarus' house because not only do people want to see Jesus, right, he's becoming extremely popular, but uh, there's also this cat that he raised from the dead. And I was like, well, if we're, if we're in town, everybody's coming to Jerusalem for Passover. So all the Jews are making this migration uh, to Jerusalem. So the crowds are even larger than before. Then we show up on Sunday and they all go from Bethany. They're going into Jerusalem and Jesus tells them to go untie this colt and bring it to that had never been ridden by anybody. They brought it to him and they laid their cloaks down on this on this colt and uh, had him sit and then we, we now we're all familiar with palm sunday for the most part right that literally these throngs of people who are they're pulling palm leaves off of the nearby trees they're laying down they're taking their cloaks off of their own back and laying them down they're making this red carpet treatment for jesus as he arrives in jerusalem this uh challenges the pharisees very very much all right, immediately, he hears, they hear the crowd saying things like this. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. <clears throat> this is almost an exact uh, quote from Psalm 118 that talks about the Messiah. So when they see the people reacting, they see how popular he is. They see just all these people calling out. They go to Jesus and they're like, teacher, you need to tell your disciples, you need to correct them. Tell them not to say those things. And Jesus answers very famously. He says, if every one of their mouths were shut, the very trees and rocks would cry out. So he doesn't, get, he doesn't give in to them. Now, every time I've seen Palm Sunday depicted, it's always depicted as like this celebration, awesome thing that happens. But we're going to talk about this when we come around back at the end. I want you to think about maybe what Palm Sunday really was. All right, we move from Sunday on to Monday, and uh, Jesus and his crew are, again, they're leaving Bethany. They're going to the, now they're going to the temple. He's going to start teaching in the temple. When he shows up at the temple, he realizes you have to pay a temple tax once you get to the temple. The temple is full with people. Again, the whole nation of Israel is coming for Passover. So everybody and their brother is here at this place. Well, the temple people are racking up. You got to pay a temple tax when you get there. Uh, there are also a number of merchants that are selling pigeons, turtle doves, rams, sheep, whatever you need. They are your one-stop shop for your sacrificial needs. 
Well, this frustrates Jesus. He comes in. He starts flipping over the tables. He says uh, that my, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a, into a den of thieves. Okay, the Pharisees take note of this. They realize, okay, it's one thing for you to have a parade through the city, but now you walked into our living room. And pretty much said that we're, we're not even able to see the, the sin that's within our own house. All right? This is becoming too much. Now it's hitting a little too close for home. And this begins this catalyst. This thing that's been brewing throughout the entirety of his ministry is really starting to come to a head right here during this Passover. So we move from Monday, we move on to Tuesday. Tuesday's a day of traps. With the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees and the high priests, they're all trying to trap Jesus publicly. He is exalted by the people. He is, he, he is he's, uh, gathering larger crowds than what they're used to seeing. So they, they know that they have to knock him down a few pegs Publicly, So to do this, they have these schemes of these questions that they're going to answer him and they're going to trap him into saying something that the people aren't going to like, that contradicts, you know, the word of God or, or whatever. And each and every time they come and ask him, you know, on whose authority were you able to do what you did yesterday? Right. And he answers them. He goes, uh, whose authority was John baptized in? Because he knew that this was a trick question. If, I, if, they, if they said that John's baptism was of God... Then John proclaimed the way of Jesus. So that brought a validity to who Jesus was. If they said that John's baptism was of man, John the Baptist was extremely popular. And they were going to lose face with the crowd by, by talking out against John the Baptist. All right, they ask him, you know, these trick questions about whether or not we're married in heaven. And the Sadducees, who don't even believe in a physical resurrection, are asking him about, you know, well, if brothers die and then this happens in the law. And, then, and he answers them and just says, you just have no, you have no understanding of scripture. All right, they bring, they, uh, they bring a, a law expert, to, or the, the, they bring the Pharisees and the Herodians in. They bring a, a coin and they ask, is it, is it right for a, for a Jew to pay taxes to Caesar? Right? They're like, okay, well, you know, the, the crowd is not going to like him uh, siding with Rome, right? Because they've been oppressed by the Romans. I mean, they, this is one, one of their expectations. Remember this. One of their expectations of the Savior, of the Messiah, was that he was going to remove this oppression by Rome on them. So if he speaks out against, if he says, yes, you give taxes, he's siding with the oppressor. If he says no, he can be arrested by the Romans for, for treason against, against Caesar. And so eloquently he says, whose image is on that coin? And they're like, uh, Caesar's? Why don't we give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and you give unto God what is God? The Caesar's image is on that coin, and so you do what you have to do with that, but God's image is on you as, you, as a created being in him, so you go and you do what you need to do with that. Just, it says over and over, they, turned, they were stunned, and they got sent away. They could not trick them. They couldn't trap them. All right, we move on to Wednesday, and Wednesday, I'm assuming Wednesday for the disciples was much better. There was all this Jerry Springer drama on the first two days. And finally, they get to Wednesday, and Jesus is again teaching in the temple. The crowds have gathered, but there's no opposition. There's nobody showing up trying to trick them. There's no tests. There's no open confrontations because Caiaphas has taken the high priests and the Pharisees, two groups who normally war against each other for power. He's brought them together because nothing unites people like a common enemy. 
And they begin plotting to kill Jesus at Caiaphas' house. Now, they're fearful of his popularity. So they say, you know what? It's not really smart for us to do anything until Passover is done. But if the opportunity happens to arise, then we're willing to take it. Well, Wednesday happens to be the day, the, the, the day that Judas shows up to the high priests and the Pharisees. What, what, what made him go on the search? Okay, remember, uh, um, Palm Sunday happens on Sunday. The Saturday before, before Palm Sunday is the time. Again, I told you they were at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house, right? This is when Mary anoints Jesus' feet with this very, very expensive perfume. Right? She, wipe, she wipes it. I mean, this, this beautiful act of worship over the Son of God. And who got mad? Judas got mad. Right? John 12 tells the story. It's Judas is like, and if we're honest, he makes a great argument. I can tell you in my mind what Judas is saying makes sense. Why in the world would we, would we use that the way that we're using that? That is so expensive. We could give given so much for the poor. In, in, the, in the three years of our ministry, we've always done it meagerly and meekly. We have never been about indulgence or any of this kind of stuff. Why have we wasted this in this way? Now, we also know in John 12 that even though that argument sounds great, that maybe not, was not necessarily the motivation of Judas, Judas's heart. It sounded good, and it made him sound very pious and kind of indignant, but the truth of the matter is he was in charge of the purse strings, and he liked to skim off the top, and he was planning this, this, this the selling of this perfume was going to be a big payday for him. So Judas goes and for 30 pieces of silver, which Levitical law will tell us is, is the price of a slave. Judas says, I'll get him in a place away from the crowds at a time when they're not there. And I'll give him unto you. I can deliver him unto you. Thursday is this very, very relational day between Jesus and, and his disciples. This is when Jesus, on Thursday, Jesus washes their feet and talks about real servant leadership. He institutes the Lord's Supper in the upper room. He's honest with the fact that he knows that somebody's about to betray him, that Peter tells Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter's, Peter objects and says, there's no way I would follow you into battle and even unto death. And Jesus says, no, but, you know, before, before morning, three times, three times you're going to deny me. He has all the, they, they get in a fight, you know, very typical fight in a room full of guys. Which one of us is best? I'm better than you, uh-uh. So the disciples, they start talking about which, which one of them is greater? Which one of them is greater? And again, Jesus has this, this eloquent teaching about what it means to serve, how the greatest, the greatest is not the one who sit and is receiving, but it's the one who is pouring out and, and is serving. That's the leader. That whoever would give their life is the one who actually gains it. And at the completion, they leave out that night and they go to Gethsemane. And somewhere in this transition from the upper room to walking out to Gethsemane, Judas slides off into the darkness to go do what he has to do. They get in Gethsemane and Jesus is tormented. 
He goes into the garden, he presses in, even beyond, you know, the three, you know, the, his, his three closest kind of come with him, but he goes even, even further in and he's just praying, praying to God and he's wrecked. The word says that he was, he was tormented even almost unto death where his, his, uh, his, his sweat became like drops of blood and he prayed what many would say is the greatest prayer that, that we have ever had recorded. Lord, if this cup can pass from me, but still not my will, but your will be done. Judas arrives with, with the whole posse, uh, walks up to Jesus. Jesus says, Judas, are you really about to betray me with a kiss? It's exactly what Judas does. Peter, who it was not nothing for him to whoop a man, immediately tries to fight back, cuts one of these guys' ear off. Jesus says, no, Heal, heals the guy right there on the spot. If I'm going to take somebody into custody and then somebody lops off my ear, and the guy I'm taking in custody heals my ear. I'm asking, are, are we doing the right thing? <laughs> is, this, is this really what we're, what we're supposed to be doing? And then he's taken off to this joke of a, of a trial that has to happen in the wee hours of the morning because they can't let the crowds know what they're doing. And everything's fixed. Okay, I want to break off from this story for a second, and I want to talk about, I want to talk about some things. Real, real quick, I want to talk about who we are as people. What makes us tick? You know, we're different. We're made in the image of God. We're not just animals. Despite whatever science wants to tell us, wants to tell us we are different. There's something unique about being human. We have this persona, this psyche, this this personality. So I want to break down some pieces, I think, of what makes us human. And then we'll relate it back to the story when we get to the end. The first thing about us is that we have a conscious mind. What this means is we're able to talk to ourselves. I experience a circumstance and I have a conversation with myself about what, how I feel about it. Okay, you might not necessarily know that you're verbally communicating with yourself, or you may talk to yourself all the time, depending on your level of insanity. <laughs> but all of us do that. Every single one of us in our conscience, if I, you know, if I'm a salesman and I'm going to go play golf with a prospective client, and I wake up that morning and it's raining, then I tell myself, oh, it's raining, this is bad. Why am I saying that this is bad? Is rain inherently bad? No, we kind of need it for our ecosystem to exist and do what it does, right? It's my perception of the situation. My perception is I really wanted to go with this client. There was a chance I was going to make this real, real big deal. Now, because it's raining, I'm not going to be able to do it. Thus, this rain is bad. Even though maybe I don't say all those words, but... I have that, that conscious awareness through that as I go through that. Okay, another part is our subconscious mind. Okay, this is kind of the, the broad assumptions that we live our life under. They're not sentences that we say, because as soon as we say it, even to ourselves, as soon as we say it, then we're becoming aware of it. These are kind of the things that just kind of guide and mold our perception of circumstances. All right, in the same example where I'm a salesman and I don't get to uh, play golf with my client, okay, subconsciously what is motivating my perception there is that I believe it is important for me to have money. 
Now, I'm not going to say that because it sounds uh, materialistic and, and I mean, nobody, nobody would actually say that. But my negative response to the perception that now this rain has happened and I don't get to go have this sales meeting exposes subconsciously that I do have this, this. I mean, the world programs us. We're affected by the environment that we, that we live in. And Satan and this world are continually trying to tell us how we will be fulfilled. It's in the movies we watch. It's in the interaction that we have with other people. It's absolutely everywhere. And you can puff your chest down and be like, I'm not affected by any of that. And I'm sorry, you're lying to yourself. We are all affected by that. I heard an example of a, of a guy, and he's the son of this very skilled musician. So subconsciously, he equates significance with his ability in music. He doesn't say, I am worth something when I am better at playing an instrument. He doesn't have that conscious decision, but he perceives everything that happens through this lens of knowing that his dad was a very skilled musician, and he wants to find the same significance that he had there. Make sense? Are we tracking? All right. So we have our conscious mind, our unconscious mind. Then we have our heart. Our heart is the general direction that our life goes. It's the general bent that we kind of have. Now, biblically, the word tells us that there's only two ways that our heart goes. My heart is either going to be serving God or it's going to be serving myself. Right? It's Galatians 5. The flesh minds the flesh and the spirit minds the spirit. Now, the funny thing is, is that this heart, this inclination, even though there's only two ways it can go, it can manifest itself in a whole lot of different ways. In fact, we interact with each other many times on these manifestations of the heart. You can be a, your heart could be self-serving, but the way that it manifests is, is nice for us, right? If you get your significance through the acceptance of other people, then you're going to cater to what other people want. You're going to do what you need to do for them to accept you because that meets a need of significance for you. It is a selfish motivation. I want to feel good about myself and what, how I feel about myself is attached to what other people think about me. Now, now, we meet these people and we're like, oh my gosh, they're so nice. They're willing to bend over. And I'm not saying everybody who wants to help somebody is like this. I'm saying they're very different. Some people are very motivated by service. Right? I mean, Christian organizations aren't the only ones that do benevolent and generous work out in our world. But some people are motivated to go do that service, to jo join the Peace Corps and all that kind of stuff because it makes them feel good to do something for somebody else. That's a selfish motivation. See this, when we start talking about heart, this is when the Christian and the, and the non-Christian start to separate themselves. Because as a Christian, I have, set, I have lost myself to Christ. I am crucified with Christ. It's not I who live, but he who lives through me. So I'm no longer living for my selfish desire for what this world tells me will meet my needs and make me feel good. I've now lost myself in Christ, and it's he who, that, I, that I live for. The motivation of everything I do is to serve God, is to glorify him in what I do. So I've got the conscious mind, the unconscious mind. I've got the heart, and then we have the will. The will is my ability to choose. 
So I want you to, but listen, think about how all these things work together. Okay, uh, Genesis 2, we're all given free will. You can eat of any tree in the garden. Just don't eat of these. But you can eat of any tree. You have the ability to choose. But people will always choose what they believe. I'm always motivated in how I respond to a situation to meet the needs that I feel like are not being met. Separate from God, correct? So what does this mean? This means that here the unsafe person wakes up in the morning and perceives an event, right? This event is affected by the subconscious whatever has gone on that has told him this brings worth and security and significance and acceptance and love to to your life. He perceives this event, which is going to dictate how he behaves toward that event. It dictates what kind of emotions he feels toward that event, even if he's totally oblivious to the input of the subconscious that's messing this up. So how does this change for the Christian? Well, the Christian says, I don't live for myself anymore. I know I'm living for God. I make Jesus the priority. I put God's word in my life. Now my conscious mind is aware of the truth of God by revelation of the Holy Spirit and his word inside of me, okay? What I know to be true in my conscious mind cannot be contradicted by my subconscious. So now it changes how I perceive everything. Now the salesman in me that wakes up and realizes I can't go on this golf outing with this guy, I can be disappointed but I don't lose my peace and joy because the supplier of my life is God. God meets every need, not whether or not I can make this deal with this guy. When I turn the direction, the the direction of my life and say, I'm not serving myself, I'm going to serve God. And in doing so, I put his truth, his spirit comes inside of me. I put the truth of his word in my life. It is, we are dependent. That's why I said at the beginning, I'm not going to give you each and every little verse because you should go and interact with this word on your own. This is our defense against the constant barrage of this world and telling us what's important and telling us how our needs are going to be met and telling us that we have to be selfish and guard ourselves. No, I believe God will supply everything that I need. So absolutely, maybe I'm disappointed. And we can experience negative emotions and not sin because I'm not going, I don't, I don't put, my needs are met in God. I still have a preference. I still have a way that I wish things would show up. I'm just not going to let that dictate how I live my life. That's what enables us to to experience, I mean, even the tragedies of life, the loss and the pain, I I can, I I don't enjoy it. And some of it is excruciating to go through, but it doesn't rob me of my peace and my joy because I am satisfied in Christ. My belief, my belief is that he will provide everything that I need. Love, acceptance, worth, security, and significance. It comes because I am a child of the living God, not with anything this world has to offer me. Right, so that's what, as we mature, that's what we're trying to do. I want my will. My will can only choose to do something that makes sense to me for the most part. 
My will, even though I have a free will, I have to comprehend things. I have to perceive them in the right way. So now when I start thinking about Christian maturity, what is that? It is that I am so ingrained in in directing the purpose of my life toward the service of God, committed to his word in my life, that it changes the way I perceive things. And that's what separates us as Christians from this world. That's what when we say, I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. That's when people start coming to us and saying, I need to talk to you about what I've seen here because you react different than everybody else. When everybody else would have crumbled, when everybody else would have thrown in the towel, when everybody else would have quit, you persevered. That's what our goal is. I I know, I'm going quick, I promise. I I just say that to make y'all not worry, but it might go long. No, I'm just kidding, it's going to be okay. I want to look at three different people in this story that we talked about. Okay, we talked about Palm Sunday, the crowd. All right, this is interesting to me. The crowd, this is the pinnacle of Jesus' ministry, and they have no clue why. They have no clue what he's walking into, right? I said, Palm Sunday has always been depicted as this great, awesome celebration. But the truth of the matter is, six days after the cries of Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to, uh, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord, turn into crucify him and give us Barabbas. Six days. And they pulled a 180. Listen, the very thing that the Pharisees were scared of, the very thing this, this, this mass of people Turn on Jesus. You know, I mean, it's funny because the high priest, they all have this scheme. And to be honest, it wouldn't have worked if it wasn't for the crowd. Pilate wasn't going to do it. It didn't make any sense to him whatsoever. But the crowd kept calling. No, no, this is the time when you release one to us. We don't want Jesus. We want Barabbas. Crucify him. Crucify him. He's a blasphemer. And just like that, why? They, they were impressed with Jesus, but as soon as he showed not to be the kind of Messiah they thought he was going to be, they bailed on him. As soon as he didn't meet their expectation, we see this all the time in the church when somebody goes through rightfully a hard and difficult situation in their life and they get mad at God. It's the same thing that the crowd did. The crowd wanted a Messiah that was going to come and destroy Rome. They wanted a Messiah that was going to exalt them to what they thought their rightful place was in the world. And instead, what they got was a bloodied and a beaten Savior. Instead of having someone who comes and dispenses wrath on their enemies, they found someone who received the wrath of God. And they turned on them. See, it's one thing just to be impressed with these things of God, to to marvel at the miracles and Lazarus walked out of the grave and, and everything. It's another to be invited in by the Savior. Because that's what happened with Judas, right? I mean, Judas did ministry with Jesus. 
He hung around him. He wasn't just a witness to these things. He was a part of the inner conversations. He was in the upper room when the feet got washed. He was a part of the Last Supper. It wasn't until they left the upper room that he went to go do what he did. And he went to go do it after Jesus said, someone's about to betray me. How does that happen? How could he be in the vicinity of Jesus that long? How could he be privy to all that teaching and still turn on him. I personally believe that it's because his needs were met through money, right? He's in charge of the purse strings. He's skimming. When he goes to the high priests and the Pharisees, it only takes 30 pieces of silver for him to turn on everybody he's done life with for the last three years. How important is God's word in our life so that we could be transformed? How are we transformed? By the renewing of our mind. That I am dependent on the revelation of the Holy Spirit and God's word in my life to perceive the circumstances of my life correctly. That when I do that, I mature. The only person in this story that I see respond the right way is Jesus. Who even knowing Peter's going to deny him, knowing that Judas is going, is going to, 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 to betray him, knowing everything is, is, is wrecked in the garden, is pleading with the disciples, please, I understand the, that the spirit is strong, but the flesh is weak. Pray so that you will not fall in temptation. Dear God, let your will be done in what I'm about to have to do. Dear God, if if you're saying that this cup cannot pass, then my prayer is your will be done. Listen, Jesus had a preference. We tell the story of Jesus being perfect and emphasizing that he was the son of God too flippantly. Jesus Christ was the son of God, 100%, but he was also 100% the son of man. Which I tell you this, and I don't believe, listen, he was capable of sin and did not. Too many times we dismiss the perfection that is Jesus on this earth because we're like, oh, he's the son of God. He didn't have a choice. No, the garden shows us he absolutely had a choice. And every time, when he was tempted in the wilderness, the same wilderness that he could see from the garden of Gethsemane. You look off, that's on the Mount of Olives. You look off and you see same wilderness that probably tempted him in that moment too. That probably, I mean, this is just me talking, but as he's praying there, he's looking and thinking, I can slip off into that, into that wood and be gone. But he said, no, not my will, your will be done. It's not about what my preference is. I'm here to do as the Father is doing. And as you see me doing, then you're going to know that that's what the Father's doing because that's all I'm about. How did he fight the temptation in the beginning of his ministry? Luke 4, right? Satan comes and tempts him with significance every single time. Tempts him three times with significance, right? Prove that you are who you you say you are. Hey, turn this uh, stone into bread, and Jesus, uh, here, uh, I, this world has been given to me, and I can give power uh, unto whoever I want to. So I'm promising you, if you'll bow down and worship me, I will give you all the power over this world that has been given to me. If 
finally, at the end, he quotes scripture back to Jesus and is like, hey, the word says that you're going to be protected and that his angels are going to do this. And so you just throw yourself down and let's watch and see how he's going to raise you up. And every time Jesus responds with, 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 with his own scripture, every time he quotes back the word back to Satan, because the word of God is what brings enlightenment to what God's purpose is to me. It is the fuel for me to fight through this world's barrage on trying to tell me what's important, what brings me significant, and what's going to meet my needs, right? Listen, st- being under a very, very good teacher does not combat the subconscious assumptions this world has pumped into me, right? Watching this awesome preacher on television doesn't combat these things. interacting and being part, having intimacy. That's what Jesus shows in the garden, that he and the Father are intimate. That's what Jesus shows in the wilderness when he's tempted, that he and the Father are intimate. The crowd was just impressed. Judas was invited. But we're not called just to marvel at what he does. It's not good enough just that he pursues after us. It's like we said three weeks ago, this love deserves a response. If I'm committed to grow in my walk, then I'm, the motivation of my life shifts from being about what I want, from me being the one trying to meet my needs, to having the faith that God is who he said he is and that he is capable to meet Every need that I have. And when I do that, I perceive this world differently. And when I put the truth of God's word in my mind, it changes how I see this world. And God is glorified. I'm able to worship God and to serve others, not out of a selfish ambition because it makes me feel good but out of a response to what he's already done. 